Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we're continuing our explorations of stories on both page and screen because we have yet another well-known book that's coming back to theaters. In this case, it's part two. It is Dune. Dune is a very well-known science fiction book that has been told on screen a number of times. And we recently got a uh, very popular movie, uh, part one of it, I think about two years ago. We have a part two of it is going to be releasing right around the time this episode comes out. And I wanted to get Stephen Cox, who is a someone who's been on this podcast before, who has a depth of knowledge about this book and a lot of the themes and theories that go into it, and also happens to be my brother-in-law, uh, on to talk with me about it. And the interesting thing about this all is that as I have learned more and more about this, I, I read the book once a long time ago. I've seen now numerous versions of the movie. And kind of uh, ironically, given that we just did, as I said, another page and screen episode on Frankenstein, on Frankenstein, forgive me, I've watched too much Mel Brooks. This is yet another story where the book and the understanding of the book does not always match up with the popular culture understanding of it, particularly the way it's presented on screen. And so, Stephen, let me kind of just jump in right with that. This is another story about a hero who goes off to become just like the people who he's trying to liberate and becomes a great hero to them and is a messiah figure and he leads them to glorious battle and his eyes turn blue and everyone rides off into the sunset happy because he has taken over and brought justice for everyone. Is that is that <laughs> that that's certainly seemed to be the popular conception of Dune. Yeah, yeah. Matthew, I'm I'm really glad you started there because that is kind of my biggest peccadillo with uh, uh, the portrayal of this story in film mm -hmm. and, and the uh, TV miniseries is it really does become this kind of white savior. Uh, he comes in, he, he saves the colonized, he, he, you know, he's destined for greatness. He's the one, he's the Neo, he's, you know, he's everything. Um, yeah. But if you read the books and, and by the books I'm kind of thinking about the tr the original trilogy of books there's more books mm -hmm. beyond that but um, the original trilogy taken together is is precisely a, an admonition to uh, beware of that figure that figure is mm. devastating and destructive and that that charismatic religio political leader is the worst thing that can happen to humanity um, so the idea that this is just dances with Shai Halud is not actually accurate? <laughs> yeah. Although the first book, I mean, that's the thing is the, the, the tone of the first book is uh, is strikingly different. You know, each of the books in the trilogy has a, a different kind of theme. You know, the first mm -hmm. one is is, is uh, religion and uh, destiny. The second one is politics. And the third is prophecy. And... Uh, mm. And you have to kind of take them all three, you know, the, the second and especially the third books get very, very strange and very, very weird. So to me, it's not particularly surprising that uh, Hollywood hasn't gone there, um, mm -hmm. but it really does a disservice to Herbert and, and the story itself. It makes it kind of the opposite of what it is. Right. So let's start with this popular conception of the book. And it's one that I'll admit I, I even held until not that long ago. You know, I, and I believe actually a conversation with you helped me kind of get started on this because when the new movie was coming out, I remember saying I wasn't that excited about the story because to me, granted, I'd read the book once, but I'd probably kind of not give it too much attention. It's a, a very dense book, and I think not that – it's not what I'd call a page-turner unless you're really into some of the themes. And <laughs> I was probably at a point in my life where I was not reading it to be a page-turner. Like I think it's probably a very good book, and I want to go back and read it again. Uh, and certainly skim some parts to get ready for today. But as I said, the, the the impression I think that a lot of people have is, you know, it's about this guy who the Harkonnen are treating these people, the Fremen, terribly. And the Atreides, in some ways, are very similar to the Fremen. They're both getting kicked around by everybody. And so the Atreides go there. And, and this is largely coming to me from the most recent movie. But, you know, the Duke wants to work with the Fremen and partner with them and help help give them a better life instead of just... Um. Uh, uh, instead of just ruling over them as slaves the way the Harkonnen did. And as I thought about that story, and, and granted, I think a lot of it was, you know, people writing about the story and talking about it. And like, 
the stories kind of take on meaning in themselves in the way that it's, you know, Mandela effect told down it again and again, it became this great example of why one people saying that they're going to liberate another just never works. You know, that you cannot, as colonizers, liberate the colonized. They they have to do it themselves. And you can support that and certainly get out of the way of it. Um, but that, from what I'm hearing from you, is very much not the story of the book, correct? Yeah, I mean... I, I guess I guess I shouldn't plant too bit of, uh, too uh, firm a flag on that because it, it's a little more complicated. Um, mm. I do think that if if the book and just thinking about the first book has a weakness, it, it is a little bit that the Fremen don't get the screen time or like the the page time. I guess mm-hmm. uh, that they maybe deserve, but um, but even. Even as there is a little bit of that, uh, you know, uh, that lack of agency as 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 they're kind of led by Muad'Dib, mm-hmm. um, by Paul Atreides, like they are treated with respect and right. strength. They're fully fleshed out. They're three dimensional. They um, they do have agency, although we don't see it a lot. Um, I think. In terms of planting the seeds in the first book of that theme, um, a lot of it is kind of really like rooted in uh, Middle Eastern history. Um, I think right. Herbert um, was not only—I mean, look—you know—the book's Orientalist, like that. There's just no getting around right. that. Um, but Herbert was very respectful of Middle East culture and Middle Eastern history. Um, mm-hmm. He clearly had people he was talking to um not just books he was reading but colleagues and friends he was talking to who were familiar with the culture right. and and with the history and well let, um, let me just interrupt you there for a second because I, I think you're starting to answer a question that I had that i wanted to get into which is that you know this is a book about um a, a people who are considered more primitive to the kind of first worlder types again using those terms in, in quotes who live in a desert area and have control of a resource that the rest of the, the universe needs for transportation. So this is very much supposed to be a metaphor for Saudi Arabia, like the Middle East and oil. Correct? Is, is that is that kind of where you're going? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to read it now without thinking that. Um, yeah. I, I, I think... I think maybe Herbert was thinking a little, a little more classical history than that. Mm. I think, um, I think in terms of, of you know, when we think about jihad, the the, the the theme of jihad is really, really strong. It's that's what the first book is about. Is about this coming jihad. Now, now again, I don't mean to keep interrupting you, but because you're using terms that I think a lot of the audience may not know or. I think for most people, when they hear the word jihad, well, if you're a certain kind of geek, you think of Vampire the Masquerade. But mostly, you probably think about the word that is used to describe what is described in the West as acts of Islamic terrorism. Now, I know that that word is not that, and I'm sure you don't mean it as that. I can't say, though, I know exactly what it should be defined as. So one of the reasons why we're bringing Stephen here on is he is also an expert in Middle Eastern history and concepts like that. Talk a bit about what the word jihad means and what you mean, what you think Herbert means by it. Yeah, uh, you know, so, by the way, in the 2021 film, I think they replaced jihad with crusade, which, like, it's kind of inevitable because Americans have this inescapable association of the word. Um, Mm -hmm. But in Islam, uh, jihad just means struggle. And over the centuries, it has generally come to mean a struggle for liberation. Um, right. There's an internal struggle for liberation. There's an external struggle for liberation. And so anti-colonial movements um, in the Middle East were often couched as jihad. And I think that's really that really gets at what Herbert is talking about. Mm. Um, that's how he means it. He means it in the way that most Muslims, you know, when he's writing in the 60s and 70s, most Muslims would have thought of it in, in or most Middle Easterners anyway would have, would have thought mm-hmm. of it in those terms in those liberatory terms, right. um, and you know it, we Western audiences, especially American audiences, really just don't think of it that way, and so right. it, it it's really got a lot of baggage to it. But I do think 
Um, I do think that's what he was going for. Mm, okay. And so because that's the idea is that there is this, um, and I think it's also further helpful, is that we're using the word messianic quite often. That's a word that in popular culture today is associated explicitly with Christianity, but all three of the Abrahamic religions have a concept of Messiah to some extent. Judaism, at least Temple Judaism, thousands of years ago very much did. Many parts of Judaism today have moved away from it. Some parts still are waiting for a Messiah. There, there's an agreement that Jesus was not that Messiah. Christianity obviously believes that there, that, that Jesus was the Messiah. And Islam also does have some, some messianic ideas that are different sects of Islam hold to more or less. Um, but again, this is not an exact parallel to Islam by any means. But talk about the... Good. Yeah. So, I, 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 one of the interesting things. So, in in Dune, uh, Paul Atreides is uh, is referred to as the Mahdi, um, which right. is the Islamic Messiah. Um, and especially in Shiism, um, there's a chain of Mahdi's, and the kind of pre- prevalent uh, thread of, of Twelver Shiism has that this Mahdi has been hidden, um, occluded. Uh, from mm-hmm. us, um, but will will come back, um, and I think that's the tradition that Herbert is drawing from, because um, oh gosh, I should have looked this up. Um, the 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 twelfth Imam, uh, the Mahdi, uh, died under the Abbasid Caliphate during the Middle Ages, um, and that's when he went into occlusion. Um, but very similar to. Uh, Paul Atreides, the Mahdi in Dune, um, his father was a leader of the Banu Hashim clan, uh, a leader of a very highly respected family. Um, Mm -hmm. He actually was the 11th imam, uh, the 11th uh, 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 messiah. Um, And arguably he was killed by the caliph um, just as in the book and film uh, Paul's father, Leto, was very popular, rivaled the emperor, was mm-hmm. killed by the emperor's schemes. So there's, a, I think that parallel is just right out. Okay. So I, I, I didn't realize that they're actually using Islamic words. Or, they're actually using Arabic words um, to discuss similar similar ideas here. Um, yeah, he sometimes, he sometimes tries to uh, obfuscate the Arabic terms that he's using. Like... Mm-hmm. Um, and you know my Arabic is terrible now, but um, you know I don't, I don't think um, like muadib or nisan al gaib. Like I don't think a lot of these terms quite translate. Um, mm-hmm. But Mahdi for sure, and and jihad, I think he's using just spot on. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, so that's sort of the public. Cons- well, and so again, yeah, the idea of the white, blue-eyed person who who runs this, I can see now again why we're getting into some critiques here. Um, so, what do you think Herbert is actually trying to say about this idea of the Moadib who who comes along and and you know as an outworlder comes along to be more fremen than the fremen and to lead them to to glorious victory? Because also, again, in the popular culture understandings, the movies, and if you've just read book one, it ends with them just liberating the Fremen, right? It's not going beyond that. In the in the first book, they yeah, they liberate the Fremen, but then at the very end, Muadib marries uh, the princess Erlan and becomes the new emperor. Right. So um you know, spoilers for the end of part two, uh, they win at the end. The Fremen are, 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 are liberated, you know, through their struggle and through Paul's. And um, then book two is kind of about the uh, emperorship of Paul Muad'Dib. And mm-hmm. he becomes this tyrant. Um, he, mm. Through the spice, he, uh, you know, I mean, we can get into all the, you know, he, he kind of combines, this is another kind of theme of the book, is uh, this kind of gender essentialism. He kind of combines what Herbert considers like the, the masculine and the feminine um, logic, 
and intuition, um, the mentat and the Bene Gesserit, and, um, and, and becomes kind of more than both of them. And uh, he has this incredible prescience that makes it, makes his rule kind of impossible to resist. And that's when we start to see um, this liberatory figure, this like, um, yeah, this colonial, anti-colonial uh, white savior. Is he, isn't he, like, become exactly what I think Herbert, who, who himself was, was fairly libertarian and right-leaning, um, would have considered, you know, this is what happens with charismatic leaders. This mm. is what happens when the colonized and the colonial uh, combine forces to overcome that system because I think I think one of the one of the complications of the white savior narrative is that uh, in anti-colonial movements it is often kind of a blurry distinction you know a lot of times these anti-colonial movements um, aren't maybe led by a white savior but but often are led by uh, indigenous folks who have been brought up within that system and are part of that system. Right. And it's that combination of colonial and anti-colonial forces turned against the system that has produced some of the strongest anti-colonial movements. Right. Because you have to, both literally and figuratively, you often have to speak in a language that the colonialists will understand. Right, right. And Muad'Dib speaks all the you know he 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 does it all he's he's Neo he's the one he 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 can right. do all of it and his rule becomes this uh, this combination of of sort of uh, hegemony as as gained through his prescience and his kind of all knowing status mm-hmm. um, and also repression because the Fremen go from being this um, really put down uh, struggling group to being the feared imperial army. Like, you know, they overtake mm. the Sardaukar as, as this, right. this tyrannical police force in the, in the galaxy. Right. Which, given that in the early parts of the story, at least as I understand it in the book and certainly in the movies, they present themselves very much as, we don't want to have any part in all of your imperial struggles. We just wish you would leave us alone and honor our world and honor uh, our, our worms and all of this. Um, it, it feels like it, it's real betrayal of what they had claimed to originally want. Yeah, and in that case, in that sense, um, you know, I think the figure of Stilgar is uh, really important to that because his evolution uh, kind of, in a way, mirrors Paul's. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he, you know, in a, in a book that could really give more page time and and agency to the Fremen, Stilgar becomes this kind of stand-in where we watch that transition take place. Would it be fair to say then that this is kind that the first book in is kind of the Paul Atreides uh, villain origin story? I mean is he straight up presented as a villain? <laughs> yeah. Or is he more of like a like a Macbeth figure, like a tragic, you know uh, you know, a tragic he's not really a hero, I guess, but like, you know, the the person who's who has had everything go wrong and that is interesting. I think you could read it both ways. Mm. Um, Paul's trying to... Paul sees the jihad coming. And he's actually trying to prevent it. He's trying right. to uh, avert this destruction that he sees in the future and clearly becomes instead the avenue of it. Now, when you talk about that, do you mean like... For the Fremen, is the jihad the struggle to liberate Dune, or is the struggle to then go out and become the new Sadakar, Sadahar and become like the new Imperial Strike Force? Um, yeah, un- unclear. Un- unclear to me, at, at least. Um, early, it's spoken of very much in terms of the liberation of Arrakis, but um, mm-hmm. like, you know, like kind of a simplistic reading of Islamic history, which maybe Herbert mm-hmm. is doing here. Um, it goes from liber- liberation to like, well, I mean, look, we, could, we, could, we just kick everyone's ass. Like we could just right. take everything. Right. I can see that. I, and yeah, like I, 
I definitely have heard that version of Islamic history, often from right-wing folks, of like, you know, what started as the fight to liberate Mecca and Medina becomes, you know, the Islamic, you know, conquest of all of North Africa and up to, you know, um, what's now Bosnia and Serbia and things like that. So I, I can see, yeah. see where that comes from. There's it, it makes me think there's a um, uh, a medieval Islamic uh, Middle Eastern writer um, named Ibn Khaldun who traveled a lot around at the time the the, the the caliphate in the Muslim world and he actually he talked about that within within Middle Eastern history um, this this give and take between the city and the edge the center and uh, the hinterland, and uh, he even saw Middle Eastern history as characterized by these periodic. You know, you had these settled, settled cities, these settled empires, Rome, Persia, and then you've got somebody on the on the periphery uh, who starts off liberating themselves, and then finds that it's actually quite easy to to go ahead and just take that imperial place. And so um, you could argue that the Arab armies. Uh, did that you could argue that the Turks did that you could argue that the Mongols did that um, you know it's a trope I, I, I don't uh, you know I don't uh, subscribe to it but it, it's a trope that that is very very popular in yeah. in looking at history yeah I can see that and am I also right that in the book like Herbert again you know the popular conception you'd seem to be that Herbert likes Messiah stories this, this, at least, I did get from reading the book, but I don't think you get as much from uh, the movies and TV shows, though I do have hope that this most recent version is going to go deeper into this. But my memory is, specifically in the book, that there's a lot of evidence, actually, that the B'nai Gesserit, like, planted the seeds of this prophecy. They, they, they basically kind of created a self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh, you should believe that one day a person will do X, Y, and Z— and then you should follow that person so that much later they could have a person who was X, Y, and Z. Because um, that now feels very critical of religion and specifically critical of this idea. Like, kind of like, not even just that the Fremen are wrong, but that the Fremen were like, you know, have basically been like, mind, not, even, not quite mind-controlled, but have been so deeply manipulated. Um, for anyone who watches Babylon 5, it's very much kind of like the Vorlons do there of like, teaching people to think that you are the creatures of mythology so that when you come to them, they will listen to you. Um, am I getting that right? Is that actually kind of more what the Bene Gesserit are in the books? Yeah. Oh, man. I'm, I'm so glad. Okay. So you're talking about the Missionaria Protectiva, right? Right. This is, this is the Bene Gesserit uh, order of, you know, witches, however you want to refer to them, um, send out missionaries of sorts to every corner of the galaxy to plant stories because they are looking, you know, they're through their genetic manipulation. Like they're on their own quest for the Messiah. They're, right. they're trying to breed the Messiah and they're trying to make every corner of the galaxy safe for that person when they arise. Mm -hmm. And so, um, this Kwisak Sadarak, um, come is planted all over in different stories. And so by the time Paul comes to Arrakis, they've already got this well-fleshed-out mythology about his coming, um, which I think is... I, I don't want to say it's like my favorite part. It's I think it's one of the more interesting colonial aspects of the story. I think it's fascinating mm -hmm. the way that, that that mythology, the way that that kind of long-term... You're right, it's not... Not brainwash, you know, like that long-term just planting of like the seeds of ideas and right. seeing where they they sprout um, as a way of control, as a way of, um, you know, you can, like yeah, control I mean, through it's a deep winning level, parts. Yeah. yeah, it's a deep level cultural manipulation of yes. convincing people that there's some sort of outside mystical force that this person is then fulfilling the prophecy of. When really you just told them that this prophecy would happen, so that later you could intentionally fulfill that. Yes, but it also it takes root because it it speaks to something. You know, it's like they they say that uh, you know cultures all over the world have 
a flood myth, you know, similar right. to like Noah. It, it, it fulfills a cultural need. And for the Fremen, that need is their genuine subjugation. Like they do need that, that hope that comes with right. the idea that, that the, the Mahdi is coming. Right. And so what is the Bene Gesserit goal? Like you said that, you, that for them it's not totally made up though. They also believe this person, I, I think it's called the Hazi Shazarak. Is that how you say it? The, I, I always thought it was Kwisak Sadarak. Kwisak Sadarak. So what is their conception of this person? Um, their conception of this person is, oh gosh. Um, if memory serves, it's really not too different from uh, the role that Paul ends up uh, fulfilling, except mm-hmm. that they were hoping that it would be someone under their control. Um, right. And, you know, they, uh, they have kind of been for thousands of years, a parallel power structure to the Padishah emperor. And, um, for the long-term survival and thriving of the human race, they have been kind of breeding, uh, breeding, I just bloodlines, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, a lot of biological determinism in, in this book. And they've been trying to combine bloodlines to create someone who can combine that masculine and feminine mm. aspect and become kind of the Bene Gesserit that's greater than the emperor. So on some level, they're kind of looking for like the Plato's Republic idea of like that there's going to be a benevolent, the benevolent prince, the, that, that they very much want authoritarianism, but they want there to be like the one perfect person who will rule with perfect authority and justice and, and that kind of thing. But also, as you said, under their control. Yeah. And, and um, in the book, I don't think it comes through quite in the movie very well, but in the book, Lady Jessica gets a lot of flack for letting herself right. give birth to a son um, because that wasn't the plan. The plan was she was going to give birth to a daughter. They were going to pair that daughter with someone else. And then that person was going to be hopefully the Quetzal Sadrach. Right. And by giving birth to a son who was not under Bene Gesserit control, uh, Jessica's, in fact, you know, Jessica gets so, like, I think in the movie, Jessica gets such short shrift because mm-hmm. in the book, she's such a pivotal character. And in the movie, she just kind of like sweats and like, 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 uh, yeah. needs her hands together a lot. Um, but, Although, but even she, then, in, in both movies, uh, she, they, she does have a conversation, a, she does have a confrontation with the, um, I want to say the Mother Superior. I don't think that's the exact title, um, but with the head of the Bene Gesserit, where, who says you were supposed to have a you're supposed to have a daughter. You know, this is your arrogance, etc. Yeah, yeah, and and that's that really really screwed up their plans. Right. Okay. That and in the second book, the Bene Gesserit are actually you know part of they become part of the resistance against uh, Paul's rule. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And so as part of that, like, there are some science fiction worlds where there are human-like people living on multiple planets, but we're never supposed to think that they're all, like, descendants of Earth. Like, in Star Wars, there's no Earth. But am I correct that in the Dune world, we are supposed to think that these are actual human beings, that there was an Earth at some point, and therefore all of these planets are colonists who eventually because part of what i'm getting at is are the fremen a literal different species who just are very humanoid or, or is the idea that like the humans the the, the fremen the harkonnens the artrades all of these people can trace their origins if they go far 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 back enough to the humans on earth i believe so i i think um the way that Star Wars takes place, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Mm-hmm. Um, this takes place in our galaxy, but a long time from now. Kind of so that 
whatever we would recognize as our species is is deep in the mid- mists of time. Right. And so folks like the Fremen um, are not native per se to Arrakis, but they've been there so long right. that it, they might as well be. Yeah, I mean, which, you know, if you think about other native peoples, like, yeah, hum- humans, did, as far as we know, did not independently develop in the Americas. They developed, all of us, you know, came from Africa, but a group of peoples came to the Americas thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, and then 500 years ago, Europeans started to come here. And so we, we say those people are indigenous, and that that's really what ind- indigeneity means, is that... Yeah. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly the, the, the parallel. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. So given all this, why do you think it is that the story is so often misremembered? And that many of the tellings of it seem to lose a lot of this nuance and complexity. Boy, I mean, Hollywood does love its own kind of, call it Messiah, call it white savior, you know, like... We love our Neos. We love our Luke Skywalkers. Um, yeah. Hollywood loves to make those films. A film about Luke Skywalker becoming, well, I was going to say becoming Darth Vader, but Anakin kind of does. Um, but the idea that, that this person who we invest all of our hope in mm-hmm. becoming the most nightmarish thing possible is... I think maybe just less appealing. Yeah. I mean, look at like Last Jedi is one of my favorite Star Wars movies, but it's widely, well, it is by no means hated by a majority of Star Wars fans. There's a minority, but a very loud minority that very much doesn't like it. And one of their biggest reasons is because they want Luke Skywalker to be this hero and not a morally complex character. Um, And yeah, I, I find that comparison particularly humorous because I would then say that one of the best evidences of how misunderstood the story of Dune is in popular culture is when people who will say, oh, A New Hope is just a ripoff of the Dune story. When, from what you're saying, it actually sounds like Dune is more of a critique of the kind of stories that A New Hope is. Yeah, yeah. I I think, you know, um, George Lucas... You know, I don't even think George Lucas kind of thought it through that deeply. You know, I, I think yeah. he wanted to tell a, a hero's journey, and um, that's really not what Dune is. Right. Like, is there a hero that emerges as kind of the main POV character to oppose Paul, or is it much more just a story of this is the brokenness of power and of politics and of religion? You know, it's it's been some time since I've read the second and and third books but i do think there's various characters um chani uh mm-hmm. who becomes uh paul atreides uh, wife and the, the empress mm-hmm. um it kind of fills that role to some extent i think uh duncan idaho who um spoiler alert uh is brought back in the second book um mm-hmm kind of becomes that figure like there are these kind of moral compasses that you can latch onto, but there's no one there's no one anti anti-hero which is maybe the point right yeah i mean it feels like it's a very kind of like complex nuanced narrative that just in general doesn't translate to screen very well you know we, we were talking about exactly this in uh in a recent episode that we did about frankenstein where I hadn't actually fully read the book of Frankenstein until the last couple weeks and was amazed how incredibly different it is of every instance of Frank. Like I knew enough to know that the point is that Dr. Frankenstein is the monster, um, not the monster that he creates. And it's very much supposed to be a critique of scientific ethics and all that kind of thing. But realizing like, you know, there's no Igor, there's no lightning, there's no, the monster is incredibly eloquent um, you know, when he speaks, it's not just the kind of thing, you know, it's, <laughs> it's right. so very different than everything from, you know, the Bella Lugosi movies to, you know, every Frankenstein episode that every TV show has ever done. Um, and it sounds I, like Dune is kind of a similar thing. Yeah, I, I, I saw I saw a, 
saw someone online complaining, you know, someone on the right kind of complaining about this revisionism of Frankenstein as 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 the put upon victim, and it's like that's the whole that's the book. That's what the book is. Yeah. Yeah. Yo, and um, even the fact that we call the monster Frankenstein when that—that's that, the name right. of the doctor, Frank, the, yeah. the, the creature. I mean, his, his name's Adam, right? He in the book, he's never really given a name. He kind of refers to him as Frankenstein's Adam, but he often calls him a monster. Um, and yeah, I think that's we wrestled with what to call him because we don't want to call him a monster, but that's how Frankenstein. How doc, it is Doctor Frankenstein's narrative, and so that's how he frames the creature. Interesting. But yeah, it's very much an Adam kind of a story with an attempt to create an Eve is a big part of the book. Um, so pulling it back to Dune then, so you saw the movie that came out a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. I rewatched the movie just a couple of hours ago, and I think I missed this the first time I watched it, in part because I think it's a beautiful movie and it's a very slow movie, and so I, I probably was not paying as much attention as I should have been. And this time I was kind of like doing things while having it on, um, which in a weird way allowed me to concentrate on it more. But the point of all that being, and so maybe it's because of all that, or maybe it's because I have now come to understand a lot of the stuff that you and I have been talking about uh, before we recorded even, but also been talking about it with others. It does feel like this first movie, not only is Paul feeling very reluctant, but there's a lot more that makes me hopeful that maybe this movie isn't going that same direction in part two, that they are actually trying to say there's something wrong with this whole culture of, you know, hero worship and them immediately being like, oh, you're the most Fremen Fremen that's ever Fremen to Fremen. Uh, what's, <laughs> what's your feeling? Like, did, did the first movie strike you as yet another, um, we just see Paul as a hero and we're not, we're not muddying those waters? Or did it seem like there's some real potential to get into this nuance? I I am hopeful. I am hopeful that we can get there. Um, the way that his visions of the of the crusade um, played out, it 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 did look like he was, um, you know, not not feeling very conflicted about it. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, maybe this is cynical of me, but uh, I think. The fact that Chani is played by Zendaya, who is just such an enormous star, mm-hmm. um, I think she's hopefully going to get the agency and mm-hmm. the um, the role that that character really deserves and almost never gets. Um, and that that could be a, a really good way. I do think, like, culturally, maybe we are ready for that, that complication, you know? I hope so. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons, both cynical and optimistic, to to hope that that part two really delivers that. Yeah, I would really love to see that. And you know, I have my own cynicism in part because, like, from a cinematic perspective, your hero riding into battle on a 500 foot long death worm, surrounded by his, you know. Um, loyal fighters fighting against the Harkonnen who are presented as, you know, evil McEvil pants. Um, it's hard to think that's going to be anything but badass and that you're not going to look at that and go, yeah, go Paul, go Paul. And so wanting to both morally complexify that, that's not a word, but you know what I mean, while at the same time also being like, yeah, but it looks pretty badass, doesn't it? Like, I'm not sure how that can be done, but I think it's possible and I would love to see if they... or and. Especially because I do think that movies can do a good thing where the movie does make you feel something and then later tries to make you feel bad about feeling that. And I, I, I'm I being kind of facetious there. I, I don't mean it in quite those terms, but like I could see that if early in the movie we do think this is really badass. And then if later the moral complexity and nuance is really kind of hammered home, then we have to even sit in the theaters and think, wow – Maybe when I was cheering on, you know, Paul leading his army, I should have been more aware of the, of the problematicness of it. Yes, yes, I, and and I think, I think you know, the characters of Stilgar and Shani are the ones who are going to provide that, if anything. You know, like they they're they're so perfectly placed to, you know, 
look at Paul and be, you know and yeah. and see what he's doing and and start to question it and and give voice to that for the audience. Right. So we had a lot to say about this, and I want to kind of let you have some follow up uh, last things to say. But I want to ask, this kind of last question. I want to ask you. And again, this is kind of trying to look into an author's intent, and so I don't know how much you've read it, but it does seem like you know a good deal about Herbert. I'm thinking about, like, what is he trying to say here? Particularly because, um, and like, as our world right now proves, like, we still have in many parts of this country and many parts of this world very, very negative views of anything that um, Middle Eastern peoples are doing for what they might understand as a freedom fight. And which isn't a you know blanket endorsement of all of it, but also is a blank is is critiquing the blanket critique. But certainly even more so in 1965, like it was v- almost unheard of in the United States at least to be questioning anything except you know Israel good, Syria, Egypt, all these other places bad, and you know, it, um, you know we'd fought a big war in there was a big war in 1956. We're coming up on the big war in 1960 and another big war in 1967, two years before this book, uh, two years after this book is published. M- my point being, do you have the sense that Herbert was specifically critiquing Islam and messianic ideas within Islam and sort of the religiosity of Islamic freedom fighting movements? Um, and maybe it was those, maybe it could be also, I mean, this is when Mar- Malcolm X, Nation of Islam, and all those are also big figures. Is it more that, or is it more, this is a critique of messianic ideas and sort of like holy wars in all of these religions, but that couching it as in a culture that would ring bells of, uh, you know, Eastern Orientalism type things, as you were saying, is a safer way to tell the story than making it more explicitly about all kinds of holy war ideology. I think there's a couple things going on with Herbert there. I think, I don't think he's sing, singling Islam out. Mm-hmm. I think he's trying to, uh, trying to present an exotic, other, uh, mm-hmm. world, and he's doing so in a way that, like, today we would not probably consider like the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think he's critiquing Islam specifically. I think he's critiquing power. I think mm. it goes really more to his view about politics rather than his view of religion. Religion just becomes this conduit for manipulating people. And, um, but, but I think the actual critique of his story is about government power. Right. That makes sense. That certainly makes sense. And I mean, while granted, religion did not have the overt political power in the United States that it does today. This is before the forming of the moral majority or any of the other things that will then eventually lead to, you know, the Christian evangelical political movements of today. You know, certainly still Christianity had a lot of political power and, and religion had power in places all over the world, often to great, you know, terrible effect. Um Oh, no. yeah. The, the, the biggest lie that liberals ever told is that uh, the West is secular and the, 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 the East is, you know, a combination of religion and politics. Right. It's entirely and religion is suffused in our politics. Yeah. Yeah. Always has been. Um, so we're going to have some bonus content for our members in just a few minutes, specifically about like hopes for the second movie that's coming. Um, but any of the last things you want to say in terms of just like helping people better understand the story in ways that the pop culture discussions and the, the movies up till this most recent one, um, I, I say movies, there's the David Lynch movie and then there's the Netflix TV show or the two main ones that I know of. Um, but I think it's also been kind of like told, you know, in, as a Dune type story and many other things, but in all of these, like, are there any other kind of last points you want to bring up? Um, the thing that I think is most interesting, and it, it plays out in several ways, like both across the first book and across the trilogy, is the tension between like consent of the governed and repression. Mm. And, um, you know, so in the first book, the Hartonans are described as tyrannical, as dominating 
the Fremen and, and, you know, and, and I think the portrayal of the Harkonnens in the 2021 movie is so much better than in the 1984 version. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Harkonnen are given their fair due. Like they are brilliant. They are conniving. They are ruthless and brutal, but they're not silly. Like they kind of come off in the 1984 version. Yeah. They're not hot air balloons. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, so you, you see that you, you as you said, like called like Duke Leto talking about cultivating desert power, kind of what he's talking about is, uh, instead of dominating the Fre- Fremen, winning hearts and minds right. and gaining hegemony. Um, and I, I love that interplay and how kind of by the end of the book, they both come together in the figure of Paul Muadib, who is both the winner of hearts and minds and the dominator. Mm. And then throughout the rest of the trilogy, you watch his winning of hearts and minds continually degrade into Mm. just a pure domination. Right. Which I think is off. And I'll say another piece of historical context that I think is really important here is this is coming out in the 1960s where basically this is the last decade of the British empire and the French Empire, and a lot of the former European colonies, especially in Africa and Asia, are getting their freedom um, for the first time, you know? And so I think, yeah, there's another really interesting aspect of the story there um, that's being commented on. Yeah, it, it's it's an anti-colonial story, but uh, without the happy ending. Yeah. Well, um, and I, I think in a lot of ways, Herbert might have been looking at a lot of the anti-colonial movie movements of the 60s and 70s and what ended up happening as anti-colonial groups become the rulers of their of their now independent country and mm-hmm. uh, lose the hearts and minds of the people and rule increasingly uh, through domination. Yeah, he probably was looking at a lot of those examples and seeing and seeing what he wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of anti-colonial theory, that's something that's often talked about a lot, is that, like, one of the worst parts of creating a situation where the only way that a um, oppressed people can find liberation is through armed struggle is you're now meaning that the the government of the newly, you know, that, that there's, there's now an armed force that has won freedom, and that is very difficult to translate into... Uh, and a lot of the, the scholarly work, particularly that's been done by South Africans, especially black South Africans, has talked a lot about this, is that the, you know, and that Nelson Mandela especially, who we often forget was an armed freedom fighter who committed a number of acts that we think of now as, yes, they were, you know, fighting an evil regime of apartheid, but, you know, quote unquote, you know, the, but, you know, quote-unquote innocent civilians were often killed by his actions and they were described absolutely at the time by terrorism as terrorism and would be by the definitions many people use today i think it's a word that's you know grossly misover misunderstood and misused and hypocritically used but that that in south africa the ability for it to be a, a peaceful and democratic transition out of apartheid um instead of just the de- you know the defeat of the apartheid government militarily um changed a lot and i'm very much there afraid i don't want to get too into direct politics but to be very clear i'm not using that to say so therefore oppressed people should never use violence to fight back i'm saying when all other options are cut off i understand why violence is is the option i don't think i can critique that i'm saying it's a good reason for us to stop using violence to oppress people um but now we're getting way off in other ideas um (laughs) But yeah, no, I mean, I think, and I think that I think that's helpful, especially when we think about this is a book that is now, you know, fifty-eight years old, and we're we're telling it with a fundamentally different understanding of colonialism and of white supremacy and of white savior uh, ideas and things like that, and so it makes sense that the story is continuing to evolve and change in how we see it, and I'm. I will say the best result to me of this conversation with you and, and, and which also the last couple of days is that I'm much more excited to see part two of the movie and ready to be very disappointed, but also ready to be really impressed. Yeah, me, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that they can stick the landing and give us a more complicated, uh, Neo figure. Um, uh, I, 
I mean, I think I'm probably going to enjoy it anyway. It's Part one was just so beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. That score by Hans Zimmer is just... I mean, the, the movie is just a joy to watch. And I'll certainly have my critiques, but yeah. I plan on enjoying it. Well, and we'll definitely get you back. I'm going to make sure I've read all three books, and we're going to get you back to discuss them afterwards, especially with some other Dune oh. scholars. Uh, Rob McKenzie, who's been a frequent guest on this podcast, is a big, big fan of Dune and knows the books very well. So I'm hoping the three of us can get back on, as well as maybe some other folks. So we'll do a lot more of this. Um, Steve, for those who don't know you, um, do you have any published works that people can find? Or is there stuff that um, people can be like, hey, this Steve Cox person has some good ideas. I want to see what I can look at. I'm I'm entirely under the radar. I, I have okay. no social media. I've got I've got nothing for anybody. Sorry. Okay. The the doctoral thesis has not yet. I, I should be referring to you as Doctor Cox, shouldn't I? Yeah. It's it's still under it's still under quarantine for I think for another year. Okay. Okay. That then you get the right. It's because it's owned by the university right now, and then you get the right to publish it. Yeah. It. Um, you know, if you want to dive for it, you can look for it next year. Um, it's, it's actually on the anti-colonial movement in Egypt and the right. role that the Muslim bro- Brotherhood played in it. Nice. Yeah, well, very, very relevant stuff. So thank you so much, Steve. Um, if you want to hear more of Steve, just stick with you. If you become a member, you can then uh, get the full episode. We're going to do some bonus content about some more specific hopes for the upcoming movie. Uh, if you're not a member already, it's just $5 a month, $55 a year. You get ad-free content. You get... Um, Bonus content at the end of every at the end of like ninety five percent of the episodes, um, we are going to start doing members only content. We've started doing that already on Star Wars. We're going to start doing that on superhero ethics as well. And more than anything, membership also just helps support us keep the lights on. So please think about becoming a member. If you are a member, stick around for the bonus content. For everybody else, we have spoken. <laughs> <laughs>